If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. That's going to be the scripture reading for this morning. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I'm going to reveal in myself the mark of a boy who grew up listening to David Shannon and say to you, good morning. It really is good to be back here at Mount Juliet. I really do feel at home here more than anywhere. And all of us boys are so privileged to have a congregation that gave us roots, that gave us something where we can walk out into the rest of the world with a, with a ground laid for us. And I appreciate that, and I appreciate the love and support that this congregation gives to us. What does a bride feel like when she's about to walk down the aisle towards her husband? What is it that makes her nervous? I'm speaking from very limited experience here. (laughs) We know that marriage is an institution that's been put in place by God. We can see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 at the end of the chapter. We know that the marriage relationship was designed by God and he laid out a blueprint and he details these aspects of marriage for us. And we know that the marriage relationship was designed by God to provide support, to provide comfort, to provide love and security for the couple for as long as they live until death do them part. And there's these blueprints that God lays out in His Word that have these details. And the closer we can follow His blueprints, the more blessed we are and the closer we are to Him. And God tells us that He used similar blueprints when He designed the church and its relationship with Christ and when He designed the marriage between a man and a woman. And so we can learn about Christ and the church from looking at God's design for marriage. Because the Bible tells us clearly that the church is the bride of Christ. So as we get into that, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll start in verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And we understand what this concept means in marriage. It means that the husband will provide direction for his family. He will be the spiritual leader for his family. And if there are disagreements or if there are confusions It will be the husband that will be the decision maker, that will have the final say so that a decision can be made and we can move forward. Now, as a church, if we have confusion, if we need direction, if there are misunderstandings or if there are arguments, we don't look to one another and we don't don't question how each other feel about the matter because we have a husband who makes those final decisions for us and that's Christ. And so we look to his word And there may be times, there have been times in my life when I see what Jesus says and I don't feel the same way about what he said. I would have done something differently. 
But when we as a church submit to Christ, we let Him make the decisions and we let Him lead us forward. And the beautiful thing is that in an earthly relationship, maybe the husband won't make the best decisions. But in this relationship between the church and Christ, we know that He's right 100% of the time. And so people might say, you know, it doesn't seem fair that a wife always has to submit to her husband. Well, let's talk about why Jesus is a perfect husband and why we should always want to submit to him in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think one of the reasons why the bride is so nervous when she's walking down the aisle, if she is nervous, is because she hopes and she prays and she believes that she is walking down the aisle towards a man that would take a bullet for her in a heartbeat. See, part of the man's job in marriage, as God has laid it out, is to provide support and to provide protection for his wife, to provide a secure environment for her. And if there is any way that he can keep her safe, even if it means giving his very life, he will do that. And that's exactly what Jesus did for the church. There is a very real punishment. There is a very real demise that each and every one of us deserved and that we were headed to. And in a sense, Jesus took the bullet for us because he took that punishment. He took the separation from God that we were destined to experience in full. And he took that punishment upon himself. And it's because of how much that he loved us that he was willing to do that for us. And that's the same way that a husband is supposed to be for a wife. And God uses our understanding of that relationship to show us what Jesus has done for us. Let's keep reading a little bit. This is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. God wants the church to be a bride for Christ that is perfect and that is holy and that is blameless. He wants to be able to present us to Christ as a beautiful bride. And that's something that each one of us needs to think about independently and specifically. What are we doing to make this church a beautiful bride for Christ? And as we think about that idea of the bride being presented to the groom by God, let's turn to Revelation. Revelation 19. And we'll start in verse 6 of Revelation 19. Imagine what this must have been like. This is when John was receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he he was taken away to this heavenly place. And this is one of the things that he saw. It says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He was taken away to this wonderful place, a magnificent place, and it was apparent that something important was taking place and that something noble and perfect was there where he was. What is it that he was about to see? The next verse, Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints see 
one day we all have the opportunity to, to go here. This is, this is real. We really will have the opportunity to see this one day. To be at the marriage feast where Christ's church, his bride, is presented to him. And it's going to be a wonderful event. And the, the righteous acts that we do are what is going to make us beautiful before him. They're what is going to clothe him. As people, are we doing those righteous acts? Are we living lives that, that are so beautiful that we will be like a beautiful bride to Christ when that time comes? Verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. In a marriage on this earth, we can hope and expect to find a lifetime full of comfort and joy and love and peace. But Jesus tells us plainly that marriages on this earth are only until death do us part. That in heaven we are not given in marriage any longer. You see, there is only one marriage that each of us has the opportunity to be at that can provide us with an eternity of love and joy and patience. Of peace, rather. There's only one that we can go to that will provide those things to us forever. And that will be the marriage of Christ's bride to Him, the church. So I hope that every single one of us can be clothing ourselves with righteous acts, can be preparing for that day when we will meet our husband. Good morning. It is good to see everyone here this morning. I'm not David Shannon, but that sounded a lot like it. Um, I've been studying a sermon for about 72 hours this week, and this morning at about 2.07, approximately a.m., I laid the sermon down and I said, this is not it. So at 2.07 until about 4.30 this morning, I wrote a completely new sermon. I don't know why, but I had the feeling, and so I did it. And from 4.30 until about... I guess about 7.30, I was studying the sermon and memorizing the sermon so I could present that sermon to you this morning. So the 96-hour sermon that I've been working on, or 72-hour, however long it was, is sitting on my kitchen table back at home. So, it was a great morning, and I got to, we get to see snow as well. Well, it's such an encouragement to be here this morning, and we are very thankful uh, for the love and support that we receive from the congregation here at Mount Juliet. Uh, we are so blessed to receive... Um, the scholarships that, that we have received, and to be able to participate in worship services this morning. And for that, we want to say thank you. I want to ask you a question this morning. Who in here has taken a picture of something with a camera? You can raise your hand if you want to. There's a lot of us. A lot of us have taken pictures. Well, there are three main things that you must do to take a picture. Number one, you must decide what you're going to take a picture of. Number two, you have to look through the viewfinder, you have to look at the object you're going to take a picture of, and you have to snap the shutter, the shutter button. And number three, you have to have the picture developed. And when going to take a picture, a lot of times as humans, we spend a lot more time on that first step, which is figuring out what we're going to take the picture of. But why do we do this? Why do we take a look at what we're actually going to shoot instead of actually preparing for the shot and developing the shot. Why do we put more um, interest in actually shooting what we're going to shoot and thinking about that? 
Well, we want to make sure it's the best possible shoot that we can. When we think about people, um, taking pictures of people, um, they, want to, they want to be known for who they are. Um, when, when people have pictures taken of themselves, that's who they are and that's who um, they are represented of. And this morning, at like 2 o'clock this morning when I was rewriting this sermon, I was on Facebook with some of my friends that were online, and I was like, hey, what, what is the most common picture that you take with a camera? And the number one answer was people. And so people are obviously important. The, number, the second answer that was most important is animals. Um, animals is the second most important picture that's taken. And with animals, people like to take pictures um, of their animals that are doing something interesting, something that's, that's funny, something that's um, interesting for, for people to see. And the third most interesting one was buildings or landmarks or scenery um, or like at, at a lake. And the reason why people take pictures here is because it's something that's new to them. And they want other people to see that as well. They want to see their viewpoint. Though the last two steps may be the easiest of the three to do, our spiritual lives will place the development step, which is step number three, developing the picture as the hardest to complete. We read that God is our provider. He is our protector, and he is our creator. But this morning, I want to ask you to think about God in a different way. I want you to think of God as our photographer. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis chapter 1, we read of the creation story. And in six days, God created the heavens and the earth and and all creation. And in those six days, he made images in his mind. He knew what he was going to take a picture of. He knew what it was going to look like. And he placed that there on this earth and in this creation. And God said that everything that he created at the very end of Genesis chapter 1, he said, was very good. We are told that we, were, uh, that we were known even before we were born from God. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And flip over a few more pages to Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 5 through 6. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel... Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. God knew what his images were going to look like. He is the potter and we are the clay. And that's my name too, but that was random. But God is the potter and he molds us. He molds us into the shape that we're going to be. And he takes the image of what we are going to be. And that's who we are today. And he constantly takes pictures of our lives, of where we are today. Step two is capturing the shot, actually taking the picture. When capturing a picture, we have to make sure that all the elements we want to capture are in the picture. And a lot of times we have to zoom in or we have to zoom out. We we may even have to back up a few steps or go forward. And most cameras today also have an autofocus feature where it automatically zooms in for you and focuses it to make it clear. But why do we want a picture to be clear? It's so we can see it, right? If you handed someone a blurry picture, they would probably just say, what is this? Why are you giving me a blurry picture? I can't can't tell what it is. 
In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, let's turn over there. Galatians 5, verse 22, reading of the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. God had a certain thought of what he wanted his image of mankind to look like. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. Just drop back a little bit. Paul's saying here, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul goes on to tell us that the works, what, the, what the works of the flesh are, and that if we have the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh... They can't go together because they oppose each other. Just like with the blurry image. If someone takes a blurry picture, if you think about um, a teenager that goes on a photo out on a shoot or whatever all these days and just taking pictures of random things, if you have a teenager, uh, you've seen this on their Facebook or anywhere, they like to take pictures. But if it's something that is blurry, they immediately go to the photo setting and they delete it. Why do they delete it? It's because it's, it's, they don't want it. There's nothing there for them to see. They want to have a picture that is clear, something they can see, something they can understand. And God created the fruit of the Spirit so so we can be able to be understood. There was a certain image that God wanted us to have, and that is with the fruit of the Spirit. And just because God created, created us in the beginning does not mean that He has finished taking pictures. Every single day that we live, we have pictures taken of us. When you were first born, you were pure. You're a newborn babe. And the image of you that God took was pure. But maybe throughout your life, um, after, even after you were baptized, maybe some of the pictures of your life have been blurry. Maybe they've been covered with some fle- the, the, um, the flesh, the lust of the flesh. And maybe there's been times when you were able to be renewed with God, renewed with Christ and God's own image. And your pictures have become clear again. And let's go to the last step, step three, developing the picture, which is the hardest and the most detailed part of the spiritual walk with God. New digital cameras today have memory cards that we can plug into computers and upload automatically and edit. However, with my lesson this morning, I want us to think about an old film camera, one that you have to put in to chemicals to develop. A lot goes into developing a picture. If you leave the paper in the chemical too long, it will overexpose and it will turn dark and black and you won't be able to tell what it is. And for the same way, if you don't develop it enough, if it doesn't stay in the chemical long enough, it will be white and you won't be able to see anything as well. This can help us to understand our spiritual lives. Think about the chemicals. I'm going to give you two chemicals. One is labeled the world and the other is labeled the word. The world chemical contains a lot of chemical, almost all the chemical that there is, because it's what humans love. It's easy to fit into the, into the chemical, and it's comfortable to be placed into it. Let's check out James chapter 4 and verse 4. James 4 verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we are exposed in the world too long, our picture, 
our print will become dark. It will become black. It will be overexposed with the world. Could you imagine God holding the print of your overexposure into the world? Could you imagine him saying, is this clay? Is this, is this what I created? I, I can't even see him. It's not, it's not, the, same, it's not the same person I created. What, what happened? He's been, into, he's been in the world too much. He's been overexposed. The word chemical contains the smallest amount of chemical because the world has taken most of it to please themselves. There is only so much room in the chemical to tr- in the chemical trade to make the right exposure. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13 tells us how we should live. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13 says that we are to fear God and keep his commandments. That's how we serve God. And that's how we create the right exposure of our print. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God has told us what we need to do in order for our exposure to come out right. The one that is created in the image of God. One that is not overexposed and one that is not underexposed. And God knew what kind of picture he wanted to take. He wanted to take a picture of all of us. And like I said, he's constantly taking pictures of us. What does your picture reveal today? Is it the image of God? Is it blurry? Can people see it? Do people understand? Is it dark? Can they even see who you are? Can they even see that you were created in the image of God? That's the question I want to leave you with this morning. Thank you. We good? Okay. Uh, good morning, everybody. If you would be opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 1, and we'll get there in just a second. Uh, I've always loved working with kids, uh, and I, I'm glad that I'm studying to be a youth minister right now, just because I always love teaching kids. And back in high school, I taught a fifth or sixth grade Bible class. I taught two different years. But one of those years, I had one of the kids in my class. And I won't tell you his name, because uh, he'd be embarrassed, even though I know he was at early service, but uh, he may or may not have red hair, and he may or may not have a last name that sounds like McGreedy. Uh, but anyway, so he was in my Bible class, and he took a, a special liking to me, and we became really good friends while I was teaching him. And then over stateside mission trip, we got to work together throughout the week, and he would try to steal my sunglasses every single time I saw him. Uh, Audrey can attest to that wherever she's at in here. Um, but then one Sunday night, we were sitting in church, and he was sitting next to me, and I was sitting in the pew, and Audrain was sitting next to me, and I was just sitting there, uh, just listening to the sermon, and then all of a sudden, Audrain comes over, and she nudges me, and she goes, hey, Jamie, uh, he's been copying everything you've been doing tonight. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, look at him. So I look over at him. Sure enough, he was sitting there, you know, glancing over at me every couple seconds to make sure he was sitting just like I was. So I was like, okay. Well, let's see. So I, I leaned forward and I, I kind of sat like this. Look over, he did the same thing. 
So then I sat back up and, you know, crossed my legs and went, <sighs> sure enough, he, he sat right back up, got in this position and went, <sighs> and it was really funny and it cracked me up and I had to keep myself from laughing because I didn't want to embarrass him knowing that he got caught. But I'm sure we've all seen kids doing this at some point or another. That's the way that kids learn. Kids learn through imitation. And that's what I want to keep in mind throughout this, the rest of this time here together as we read uh, Ephesians 5 verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now here when it says as beloved children, it's talking about us as beloved God's children. Uh, but I love the wording he uses here, and I think it's, it's perfect word usage. Because in Matthew 18 verse 3, Jesus tells us, Truly I say to you, unless you, become, unless you turn and become like these children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, kids learn by imitation, but as adults, we don't like to do that. We like to be the blueprint for our own lives. We don't like for someone else to tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. We don't like for, us, for other people to tell us what to do. But that's exactly what God tells us to do. He says, be the imitation of God. No, I mean, there's not really any ifs and their buts there. Be the imitation of God. If we want to be good Christians, we're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to be like God. And if we want to be like Him, we have to act like Him. Do the things He did. Say the things He said. Have the attitude that He had throughout His life. So what's that supposed to look like? What does it look like to be an imitator of God? Well, here in Ephesians 5.1, it uses the word therefore. The word therefore usually implies that this statement was said in reply to something else that was said right before it. So we're going to go back to chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 17 and read until about 24. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. Here, uh, this is Paul writing to the Ephesians, and if he was saying something similar to us today, he'd probably say something like, you're not like these people. You're not like the people that are in this world. They've given up. They've given in to every form of evil you can imagine. You're not them. That's not what you learned when you found Jesus. That's not what you're like anymore. You're not that person. You've put off the old self. you put off that person that used to be in the world. And now you're one with Jesus. And that's what your life is. He then goes on for the rest of this chapter. And a lot of chapter 5, which I encourage you to go read, uh, go read later. Because there's a lot of, of great examples in it. But he goes on to talk about stuff that we shouldn't be doing as these new creations in Christ. Um, and if you look through them, you'll notice that we still get caught up in a lot of them today. Lying, cheating, stealing, sexual impurity, talking down to others, tearing other people down uh, with what we say to them. And it's hard. It's hard to get through. So how are we supposed to do this? All these things, it's so hard. What are we supposed to do? Well, in verse 2 of chapter 5, I think he gives us a pretty good idea. It says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Wow. That's, that's tough. To live your life in a constant state of love, 
Live your life in a way where you show love in every aspect, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you think, the way you feel, the attitude you have towards every single person you come into contact with, even the people that hate you and the people that you hate. You're supposed to love them. See, everything in our lives goes back to love. Someone cuts you off on the interstate. If someone bumps into you in the store and starts yelling at you, if all these things go back to love, who are you going to reach out to with the gospel of Christ? Who are you going to tell about your faith? Who are you going to talk to and comfort when they're in a time of need? All of these things go back to how much you love people. And here it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus never showed partiality when he loved people. When he saw someone who was paralyzed, he loved them and he healed them. When he saw someone who was demon-possessed, he loved them. When he saw sinners and tax collectors and other people that the world would say are unlovable, he loved them. But most of all, he loved all of us. He saw an entire world, an entire future full of people who would want to live by this world. He saw an entire race of people who he knew would need help one day. So he sent Jesus. In the ultimate form of love, and Jesus dying for us on the cross so that we can have even a sliver of hope to one day be with, be with God in heaven. Today I want you to think about, about your salvation and your faith as a mirror. Um, a lot of people in the youth group have probably seen wherever y'all are, uh, you've probably seen uh, the example in a recent Bible class over the last summer when Chuck Morris came. He had a mirror, and uh, he did something cool with the mirror that I'll talk about in a second. But when we put off that old self and put on the new self, it's like we're a brand new mirror. Nice, shiny, and clean, and we're reflecting God in everything that we do, back and forth, back and forth. Everything we do in our lives reflects the light that is God. But over time... We make mistakes. We, make, uh, we do things that we know God doesn't approve of. And slowly over time, that mirror becomes chipped. And that mirror can crack. And that mirror can break. But it's always going to be a mirror. It's always going to be able to do its job. It's always going to be able to reflect back that light. It's all, you're always going to be reflect Jesus, no matter how broken you are. If you don't believe me, just look at the life of Paul. For those of you who might not know about Paul, he's the one who wrote many of the letters we have in the New Testament today that contain God's Word. And he was once known as a man named Saul. Uh, And this man Saul was one of the biggest Christian persecutors of all times. He killed fellow Christians. And he, he did this all until he met Jesus. And once he met Jesus, he turned his life around. And now we have all these letters written by him. We have so many churches that were started. We have so much good things that have happened because Paul decided to start reflecting again. Because he chose to accept his mirror and he chose to accept his brokenness and turn around and reflect God back in his life. We all sit here are broken people today. We're all broken in some way or another. And some of us have been so broken or maybe so broken now that you don't think you could ever come out of it and you don't think you could ever be a Christian again. But that's not true. We see that so many times in the Bible. We see broken people coming back to God and showing Him 
and showing others how much love they have to give and how much love God has to give. And if that's you this morning, I'd strongly encourage you to, to come forward this morning and we can pray with you. And no one's here to judge you. We're here to love you. And we're here to show you the love that God showed us all at one point or another and continuously shows us throughout our lives. Or maybe you haven't even taken that first step and you haven't gotten that mirror replaced yet. You haven't been given that nice shiny mirror um, when you put on Christ in baptism. If you haven't done that, I'd encourage you to do that today and we'd love to help you make that decision. If there's any way we can help you, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.